This podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Inglis. The 2020 Inglis Australian Easter Yearling Sale will offer 514 yearlings of the highest quality. The sale features siblings to 181 stakes winners, including 52 Group 1 winners, as well as the progeny of 170 stakes winning mares. 58 high-profile stallions will be represented. Those with the largest consignments are Schnitzel, I Am Invincible, Capitalist, American Pharaoh, Not A Single Doubt, Fastnet Rock, Sebring and Exceed and Excel. The progeny of 15 first season sires will go under the hammer. The 2020 English Australian Easter Yearling Sale will be conducted over two days, Tuesday, April 7, Wednesday, April 8 at the world-class Riverside Stables Complex at Warwick Farm. Selling will commence on both days at 10am. It's a stunning catalogue. Segment two with former journalist, racing commentator, and uh, many other facets of electronic and print media in Australia, the one and only Rod Gallegos, and it's a delight to catch up with him after a long time. Getting back to your father-in-law, Rod Keith Nowd, on race days, you tell me he was a sight to behold. He'd call a race, he'd dash to the press room to file a story for the paper, then he'd run back to the box and call the next race. He must have been out on his feet by the last. Yeah, I, I think he, he, he. I think he loved Doombin best because the press box was adjacent to the broadcast boxes. Yeah, <laughs> uh, Eagle Farm. The the uh, press box was in the middle of the public grandstand, mm. and the the broadcast boxes, of course, were uh, uh, in the member stand. So, mm. uh, I, you know, it was remarkable the the the, um, the amount of work that he could get through on a Saturday. Mm. He had a very distinctive style of race calling with an unmistakable Queensland accent. Yeah, yeah it, it was... Uh, uh, oh, and, and I, I think there's probably a, a lot of callers around Queensland, uh, probably not now, but, but subsequently, mm. uh, who um, uh, probably model their style on him. Little bit of Keith Nowd in their makeup. I think Ken yep. Howard had a similar uh, effect on many uh, or the generation of callers that followed him. Yeah, absolutely. As as Keith Nowd's official understudy, your race calling involvement continued for quite a long time. You'd fill in whenever he was away on leave, and you were course caller at many country and provincial tracks back then. Which tracks? Oh well, we. Uh, We'd covered them all, really. There was, um, well, Bundamba. It was, um, sorry, they raced on Saturdays, but there was, it was um, one that had uh, regular midweek meetings. And then there was uh, Gatton, uh, Kilcoy, uh, Esk, uh, and Laidley. I think they were the ones. Mm. I heard you tell a funny little story about a race you were calling one day at Gatton. Now, what's the story about the big shed? in the infield, which obscured your view from some distance in the middle stages of the races? Yeah, the, 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 the barn, it was. It was uh, see, the centre of Gatton Racecourse, uh, they used to grow potatoes. Mm. And uh, anyway, there was a, there was a barn. I, 
I don't know what was in the barn, could have been a tractor or anything, but mm. it would blot out the horses uh, just inside the, the half mile, like 800 metres. And you'd try, when you were calling the races there, you'd, because or every race uh, at Gatton, they all had to go behind the barn. <laughs> and uh, you'd try and time it so you got them going in, and by the time you got to the last horse, they'd come out the other side. Well, this day, they, it was just a normal sort of a race, and, and I think it was about a field of eight or nine, and they all went behind the barn, and then they, when they were emerging out of the barn, it, it was just complete chaos. They, instead of coming out in, 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 in sort of order and... Uh, yeah maybe one or two abreast. They scattered. Uh, they were scattered everywhere. There were horses <laughs> near the outside fence and it was just, it was, it was chaos. Mm. So I went down to the mounting yard after the race and uh, uh, to find out what went wrong. And uh, Bobby Clark was one of the jockeys I spoke to and I said, what happened behind the barn? He said, you wouldn't credit it. He said, when we went in, he said there were three calves on the track lying down in the shadow of the running rail, sleeping. And he said the horses, when the horses were thundering up towards them, they took fright and shouted the horses. And uh, hence, you know, the, 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 the race was completely disorganised. And, uh, and Bobby Clark said that the trouble was, he said, I'll tell you how bad mine was going, he said, I couldn't get past the calf. <laughs> Bobby Clark. Now, at the hey, incidentally, yeah. just a little sidelight, Bobby yeah. Clark, uh, one morning at the track at Eagle Farm, uh, he was riding work for Eric Kerwin, and uh, there was this little kid on a horse uh, uh, going out with him. And he said, hey, he said, have a look at this kid here. He said, he looks like a butterball. <laughs> this little round-faced boy sitting on the horse, he was about... Or thirteen or fourteen, I think at the time, mm. and he was there on work experience, uh, and he'd come from um, uh, some of the Northern Rivers, yeah. uh, Ballina or one of those places. Anyway, uh, and he he, um, he used to go to Eric's his, for work experience, yeah. and his name was Chris Munt. Oh goodness me, he came from Casino, Casino <laughs> in New South Wales. He, yeah. he became apprentice to Eric Kerwin, and the rest. Is history. Yeah, and he, and he was the little butterball that Bobby Clark pointed out. He was a multiple Group 1 winning butterball who finished up winning the, a Melbourne Cup on Jezebel and just about every major race on the Australian calendar. He won a Cox Plate on, on Savabeel, champion jockey at a lightweight for most of his career and a champion yeah. little bloke. He was. He was. Well, now, Rod, at the Gatton course, you call from a flimsy sort of a platform with a bit of glass around it just under the grandstand roof. And one yep. day, you couldn't work out why people kept looking up at you. It was the first race, and the horse had gone onto the track, and I was uh, uh, learning the, uh, the, the colours as, as they went out, and but people all turning around staring at me, and I, I thought I hadn't turned the PA on or nothing had gone wrong, and I couldn't work out why. And then 
I finally realised that they weren't staring at me, they were looking above me. And when I looked up, that in the rafters of the grandstand, an old galvanised iron roof it was, in the in the rafters was this big carpet snake. Well, it, to me it was just a big snake, but <laughs> I found out later it was a carpet snake. But yeah. it, it, it could have been a boa constrictor. Mm. And anyway, I, I, I called the race. Um, I, I tended to think I probably had... One eye on through the binoculars and the other eye looking at the ceiling in case the, the snake moved. Mm. I went down to Bill McGovern, uh, who was the secretary of the Gatton Race Club, which they now call CEOs and whatnot, but they used to call them secretaries then. And I said, Bill, I said, there's a bloody big snake in the ceiling. <laughs> and he said, oh, yeah, that's George. <laughs> and I said, well, we're not on first name terms, but I said, he's frightening the tripe out of me. He said, no, he said, he's good, he, he eats the rats. Oh, goodness me. And I said, I'm not too sure that he can differentiate between a race caller and a rat, but <laughs> I sure he wasn't there. <laughs> um, anyway, he got one of the staff to get the, get George down and take him somewhere, and uh, yeah. the, the, the meeting went on. Uh, and Regardless. With me, <laughs> with me a bit shakily. In the 1970s, your talents were recognised by Channel 7, who invited you to become the regular host of a very popular Sunday television program called Sports Scene. Now, big-name guests uh, love to be on the show and uh, very few Sundays went by that you didn't have at least one big name uh, from a major sport. And there were many memorable moments, and you tell one story about the legendary boxing trainer Ernie McQuillan and his star pupil Tony Mundine, who later had an unsuccessful crack at a WBA world middleweight title. Yeah, uh, well, er- Ernie was well in those days in the in the seventies. Um, boxing was very big and busy in Brisbane at Festival Hall, and Ernie McQuillan uh, was a, a, quite a regular, bringing fighters up to fight in, in, in Brisbane and promote the fight, of course, he'd, he'd come on sports scene. Uh, and um, he, he was being interviewed by uh, Frank O'Callaghan. Um, Frank uh, used to cover most of the sports and um, he's a, a dear friend of mine. Even though we <coughs> used to argue on the show, I used to call him the Archbishop of Amateurism. <laughs> uh, because he was he was his main sport was rugby union. Anyway, uh, Frank uh, says to Ernie McQuillan at some stage during the oh, and I'm sitting on the in the host spot on this long desk, mm. and then Ernie McQuillan and Frank and Frank's asking the question, so I wasn't in the in the, in the shot, but uh, Frank said to uh, Ernie McQuillan, now what about Tony Mundine's glass jaw? And it was quite a legitimate question to ask. But Ernie McCullen shot the chair back, stood up, put his hand in his pocket, pulled out a wad of money that would have choked the camel, <laughs> threw it down on the desk and said, cover that and I'll see you in the car park and I'll show you who's got a glass jaw. <laughs> Dear old Ern. Yeah. And, you know, all done for, all done for the publicity. But it, oh, it, it, it did. It surprised me, uh, and uh, I, I 
I thought, now, I don't think I'm going to jump between them. <laughs> I'm just going to say to Frank, well, you know, do the best you can. Anyway, it, uh, that, was, that was all there, all there was to that. To, to that uh, it, it, just incidentally, I'm talking about sports. Um, and, you know, how you can be lucky in life, I suppose. Originally, I, I was invited to uh, go up for the pilot of the show mm. and just do a little trotting segment because I was calling the, the trots at Albion Park in those days. Yeah. And I did it, and uh, it was a little chatty thing. And, and uh, uh, <laughs> I remember one thing that stuck in my mind after, uh, we were sort of reasonably casually dressed. I had slacks on and a, a shirt and a tie. Uh, for the for the pilot, and I had a pair of white shoes that I was very proud of. And uh, after we'd finished the pilot, Bernard King was there, oh. and he, he he wasn't involved in the uh, the pilot, but he he was up there doing something, and he happened to be there when we were doing it. And he 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 said to me, he said, "Can I give you a little tip?" I said, "Yes, Mr. King." He said, "Never wear white shoes on television." He said, they make your feet look too big. And the, the, the other thing about uh, television in those days was it was black and white. Mm. And you couldn't wear a white shirt on television because it came up a, a sort of a dark colour. Mm. And to, to, give, to make out a, a shirt was white, you wore a blue shirt. The 2020 Sydney Autumn Carnival will reach its zenith with the Star Championships at Royal Randwick over two exciting days, April 4 and April 11. A total of $20 million in prize money will be distributed with eight Group 1 races programmed. April 4, the Star Doncaster, the TJ Smith, the Australian Derby and the English Sires Produce. Co-feature will be the New Haven Park Country Championship Final. Saturday 11 features the Longines Queen Elizabeth Stakes, the Swept Sydney Cup, the Australian Oaks and the Coolmore Legacy Stakes. Co-feature event is the Polytrack Provincial Championship Final. The Championships, April 4 and April 11, the Grand Finals of Australian Racing. Now Rod, you mentioned that you called the trots at Albion Park for Radio 4BK. Now, it was during this time in your career when you accepted an invitation to compare the late night show on a Saturday night after the trots at a very famous nightclub in Albert Street called Blinkers. Now, this must have been uh, Brisbane's equivalent to some of the famous nightclubs in Sydney in the 40s and 50s like Checkers and Romanos. Everybody <laughs> got there. Yeah, well, look, yeah, it was it was popular. It was popular. Um, uh, well, see, John, in those days, the the trots were big on a Saturday night, mm. and um, uh, the crowd then after the trots would go somewhere. And they um, used to make a practice of going going into blinkers, and uh, uh, you know they they would you know pack the joint some some nights. It was. Uh, it was a colourful, a colourful uh, venue. 
Now, time's on the wing, Rod, so I'm going to throw a few questions at you quickly uh, regarding your personal favourites in your time on Brisbane racetracks. You've always had enormous regard for a jockey called Graham Cook, who was probably at his absolute peak in the 70s and 80s. Uh, well, and, and look, we, and we were friends too, but um, uh, Cookie was a, a, a good mate. And, but uh, I, there were a few better jockeys than him. And bear in mind, John, in those days, it was a golden era uh, of jockeys. Um, there was uh, Arthur Lister... Uh, Whopper Stevens, uh, Skeeter Sanders, uh, Graham Cook, uh, Barry Stein, uh, Dennis Stein, um, and then and also uh, some younger predators coming through, uh, like uh, Mick Dickman. Mm. So you know it was a it was a pretty tough arena, but uh, Cookie was Cookie was. I I don't think in my time I've seen a stronger hands and heels rider than Graham Cook. Mm. Uh, he 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 was extremely vigorous. And funny thing about him, he was right-handed, but he used the whip in his left hand. Mm-hmm. And as he he used to admit himself, he said, "I'm bloody hopeless with the whip in the right hand." Yeah. And he looked awkward too when he when he a couple of times he'd be forced to use it. There were horse laying about a bit, mm. and but in the left hand he was he was vigorous and strong. Mm. But in the right hand he looked awkward. Yeah, he he'd have worked at that as an apprentice. He'd have been sitting on a chaff bag. Yeah. Uh, with a whip in his left hand. A lot of jockeys have done that over the years. Larry Olson's another bloke we've got to throw into the mix. Ah. Oh. One of the, uh, in style, one of the prettiest jockeys was uh, Larry Olsen. He was, uh, uh, it, it was copybook stuff, his style. And uh, I, the uh, Tom Brassel uh, quote is always interesting that he said you could put a uh, sponge cake uh, with icing and a strawberry on top mm-hmm. on the saddle. <laughs> Uh, of of Larry Olson's mount, and he would come back to scale after the race with the strawberry still intact. Rod, very quickly, Queensland trainers. uh, Queensland has produced some of the best trainers in racing history. Uh, Just very quickly, nominate your favourites. You loved Eric Kerwin, the late Eric Kerwin. Uh, Great bloke, Eric Kerwin. There was Con Doyle. He was, you know, an older man in in my time, but a great a great trainer. Uh, Roy Dawson, uh, a ringer from Rockhampton. Uh, he he was a, another great horseman. Um, Eric Kerwin. Um, oh dear, um, Jim Griffiths. Yeah, he he was a great trainer. He had uh, that very good horse, Spadito. Uh, won a Stradbroke and a Doombin 10,000. Jim yeah. Griffiths, in fact, that year he won the Stradbroke with Spadito, uh, the Doombin 10,000 with Spadito, and the Doombin Cup with uh, Golden Khan. Uh, something Khan. Yeah, Golden anyway, Khan. G- Golden Khan. Yeah, yeah. Now, Rod, you haven't mentioned the Duke of the Darling Downs, J.J. Atkins. Oh, 
Well, just a legend, Jim Atkins. Uh, the uh, uh, amazing trainer. Uh, and, and for such a long time, you know. They they tell the story, he tells the story, that he, he started, he was training at Deegan mm. uh, originally, and uh, he decided to go to Toowoomba, and he, he rode one and led a couple from Deegan to Toowoomba. Goodness me, yeah. Bit of a trick. Yeah, that's what they did in those days. Now, yeah. Rod, I'm going to capsulise your closing years in media uh, because time's going to beat us. In the mid-1990s, you made the decision to quit the newspaper business to join the team at Sky Channel, which was inching closer to the introduction of the famous home racing service. You wore a number of hats at Sky over a period of some 15 years, and then your final years with the company were spent at Sky Racing Radio, where you enjoyed working uh, with a great team of people. Now, you and your darling of 56 years have a son, Michael, who lives in Townsville with his wife and three kids. You've got a daughter, Kate, in Canberra with her husband and three kids, and another daughter, Mary, who lives at Noosa with her husband. So you're scattered about a bit, the Galegasus? Yeah. yeah, we are, we are. Uh, but uh, look, you know, we've uh, we've had a we've had a great life, and you know, people talk about Maccabi Diva being a great staying mare. <laughs> Alongside of my wife, Maccabi Diva is a quarter horse. Oh goodness me! A dead set sprinter because yeah, Kay has. Uh, uh, been with me uh, for uh, 56, coming up to 56 years. And if that's not a good staying performance, yeah. I've never seen one. That's a lot of prawn sandwiches. <laughs> <laughs> the, the best prawn sandwich I ever bought and ever will buy in my <laughs> life, John. was the one at the Globe Hotel. <laughs> <laughs> Washed down with a cold forex. Now, Rodney, you're a pretty fit 77-year-old with... A million wonderful memories. How do you handle the Canberra winter? Yeah, John, people all said that when we came here. I mean, I, I, I suppose it's a, a bit of a stark difference from uh, the, uh, the the weather in Bundaberg, but uh, I, I, I'm quite happy here. And in fact, when they say, well, how do you get on in the winter? I said, I put another jumper on. <laughs> Rod, you've been a wonderful contributor to the Australian racing media. You're one of the most talented people I've ever had the pleasure to work with and the most versatile. Thanks for your great work over 60 years and it's been a delight to have you on the podcast. Uh, thanks. Thanks, John. And Look, it, it went quickly, but uh, a bit like that old saying, you know, uh, quicker than a bottle of Bundy when the drovers hit you and them. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, uh, this podcast was produced by Supernova Sound. This podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Ingress.